Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are nothing but thieves to talk about how they wrote, recorded and produced their latest album, Moral Panic. Nothing But Thieves are an alternative pop rock band from Essex, England, consisting of lead singer and guitarist Connor Manson, guitarist Joe Langridge-Brown, guitarist and keyboardist Dominic Craig, bass guitarist Philip Blake and drummer James Price. The band formed as teenagers in 2012, with Joe and Connor having already spent several years collaborating as songwriter and singer respectively. The following three years saw the release of a string of EPs, all of which drew attention to the band for their immense production style, balanced with Connor's versatile vocals. In 2015, the band released their self-titled debut album with producer Julian Emery. The album certified silver in the UK, breaking into the top 15 on several billboard charts in the US, with the single Trip Switch reaching number one on the Alternative Songs chart. Following an extensive period of touring, including supporting Muse on their Drones tour, the band returned to the studio, releasing their second album, Broken Machine, in 2017 with producer Mike Crossy, reaching number two in the UK album charts. Constantly writing and bringing new ideas to life, even when on the road, the band's latest and most experimental instalment, Moral Panic, sees them expand the boundaries of their sound, delivering gritty rock anthems, silky ballads and inventive production, capturing the anxiety and confusion of our times. Today, once again due to the Covid lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and Connor, Dom and Joe join us from Dom's home studio in East London. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is impossible. I could drown myself in someone like you. I could dive so deep I'll never come out. I thought it was impossible. But you make it possible. Love is thing. My battered heart, a sudden jolt, a tender kiss. I know I'm gonna die of this, and that's because I could drive. It is Impossible by Nothing But Thieves from the new album Moral Panic and I'm very pleased to say that I am looking via the internet into the world of Nothing But Thieves. I can see Dom and Connor and Joe um, (laughs) and they're all sat in a room together. Where are you? We are in my makeshift home studio. Connor and Joe are sat here with me. Have you you got a name for it yet? Not yet. Danny Um, Dyer's (laughs) channel. Yeah, Chocolate homunculus we're, we're gonna we haven't got a name for it yet but um to be honest it's a new place and i think maybe the next songs or something that happens in here will inspire the name because it's still quite fresh yeah where where is it we are in london we're in east london because apparently that's cooler um <laughs> than the other parts for some reason and yeah joe lives down the road from me and uh connor's making his way up to back into london town soon which would be nice I mean, it doesn't really make a difference, does it? You can't see anyone. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're luckily in a in a bubble. 
which we have been for the last seven years. So no change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no change. But uh, a change, you're not in Essex. I guess that was the key question I was trying to get to. Um, no. Yeah. No, we haven't been for some time now, really. I think, um, I think we played the bar fly and we're like, well, we've got to be here, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we started going. It literally was that. It was like, wow, yeah. London. Start, Opportunities. Start, yeah, it was, it was a bit like that. And I think you start going to gigs and, you know, all your mates are up here and it just seems like, you know, seems like the place to be. Expensive, though, John. Very expensive. Yes, well, this is it. I mean, you know, the reality of staying in Essex uh, could be beneficial in, in some ways, but um, yeah. you're bringing your corner of Essex to London in a way. I think. Yeah, that's that's it. So, yeah, we're all, we're all here. We're all happy. And uh, we all lived together, actually, in, in uh, East London for quite a few years, which was an experience, to say the least. I think that was uh, <laughs> not sustainable. We toured nine months and then lived the, the rest of it. Do you know what I mean? It was... It was relentless, and I've, I, I say it like I was the one that was hard done by, but it was the other two that had to put up with me, so they were the ones that were really patient with it. But yeah, that was I think that's something that you have to do at some point, you know, band house. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's living the, the pop dream, you know, that vision of the Beatles all walking in separate doors, but into the same house, <laughs> um, which every band that I, I play on the radio, I think, they all live together in that way. You no, know, I think that's how bands should be. Yeah. No, it, it was, was good. It was fun, wasn't it? And we we had some good parties and it was nice. But I think, you know, I was joking about it not being sustainable, but you learn that when you're touring for so long, you do need time away and you need time by yourselves and it makes it more exciting when you get back together again and you hit the road and stuff like that or you meet up for writing or recording. It sort of keeps it fresh and keeps you, uh, you know, it would get to the point where I'd say to Joe, like, I can't even say what have you been up to because I know what you've done. I can hear you. I can hear you downstairs. Yeah, I know what you've been doing. (laughs) Um, So yeah, smell what you're cooking. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And I mean, now you know, third album in Moral Panic is the third album, and so um, having worked out you know where you should be living and how you should be interacting in that way, um, what did you want to do with the third record? Um, have one, have one. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't even think we'd get. To oh that, my get god, get to that level. Then let us do a third one. Yeah, literally, it's like when we said when we were you know eighteen, nineteen, and it was, oh, you'd be on your third album. We did laugh at it. So the fact that we've even got there is insane. Yeah, very privileged. But it was, yeah. it was that thing of we'd done the the second record and we were really happy with it. And we sort of toured it to death and then uh, got back and we were like, okay, what are we going to do now? And started writing and it was very difficult it was harder than we thought to get back into the motion of writing and kind of not picking a direction, but sort of experimenting enough for the like direction to find itself in a way. And it, that took a long time. Mm. Well, before recording the album, album three, the, the writing process, that was the first time we'd had off touring for, well, since that 2014, basically, since mm. we've properly started like touring. So that was, that was a bit weird. It was like a, a weird experience in general of trying to adjust back to home life for some extended period of time mm. and also figuring out what you want an album to be about where before the albums just kind of happened you know they were sort of like a a result of our experiences on the road or just sort of our surroundings but this one was more like okay well we actually need to think about what we want an album to be about this time so yeah that was a bit first, of a different experience the first two would definitely had more of like an immediacy about them because we were kind of living in it and i think they were so quick in terms of back-to-back recording and writing process that we actually consciously took a little bit of time on this one so like joe was saying that was definitely an adjustment and that writing process didn't happen 
sort of smoothly straight away. It wasn't like we just sat down with a guitar and we're like, okay, well, that's the opening song. <laughs> I do think that we, um, on the second album, we'd kind of seen what had worked from the first album. So there was like, the literally more like the soft um, melodic side and then our rockier side. And we thought, okay, let's kind of hone in on that. Whereas on the third record, I really think we were careful not to care or overthink what we did on the second record at all. So maybe that's why it started, started tricky trying to get that muscle back. But as soon as we got into that flow, it was actually insanely, um, it was freeing to not care what we wanted to write. We just would write and f do whatever we found interesting. And I think that's why the our genre, in a sense, has become more fluid and more eclectic because we don't look back on what we've done. We just kind of go, how's this going? Can we make this Nothing But Thieves? Does it sound good? Is it, you know, is it too far away? Can we rein it in? And I think even since um, we've recorded that album, everything we've written since, because obviously we've been able to write during lockdown in our, in our bubble. Um, again, it's just been without thought process, just to have fun and just to write. And I think now we've got to that place, which, you know, that's kind of the ultimate place when you're in a band to kind of create your own world and and be and fluid in, in what you write. So it doesn't matter anymore. It's just It's just you. And I think we're lucky in that sense. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. And, and it is an eclectic record. You know, it does jump around styles, you know, even within a song. I mean, that's the yeah. interesting thing. And we're going to hear that today. And um, the first song we were going to look at is Unperson, which is also the opening track to the Moral Panic album. And where does that come in the, the evolution of this record? We had a song on, um, on Broken Machine, which was called Live Like Animals. And it was kind of this experiment of um, rock meets like electro and almost drum and bass at times. And that was a step in the direction of what Unperson was. It was sort of, Unperson was it sort of like older and uglier brother. And it had, um, it pushed the extremities a little bit more. It's a little bit heavier. The vocals are a little bit more out there. And it was just, it was a fun song to write from memory. It was, it, it felt like we could just throw curveballs from each section. I think when you listen to it, verse to pre-chorus to chorus, into the middle eight, whatever section it is, it's got its own thing going on. And they're the most fun songs to write sometimes because you do feel like you have total creative freedom and you're not boxed in from what the previous section is. We were sort of just going, well, why do we go here? And why do we go there? So yeah, that's that's kind of how it spawned, I guess. I think it might have been the last song we wrote for the album, it which was. is weird considering it's the opener. That actually happened was on it? Broken Machine as well. Yeah, I was just a kid on Broken Machine was the last song we wrote became the opener and this mm. on person was the last song wrote and became the opener for this I think we tend to look at the songs that we write and we go we haven't got like an out the gates like just goes rock song or like something heavy that just grabs you straight away and that definitely was a thought process for I was just a kid and I don't know if that was the same for Unperson but like Joe said it definitely does a, a similar job and hits you over the head immediately yeah yeah, it definitely does. And um, how do you go about writing that kind of a song? I mean, you know, because the rhythm is so crucial to it, the heaviness is so crucial to it. I mean, it, are you all making noise together in one room? And is that how it starts? Or, or does somebody come in with another aspect of the song? Well, with this particular idea, we were actually in Switzerland, correct me yeah, if I'm wrong, Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Connor remembers it being on my birthday. It was a few days before your birthday. A few days before my birthday, um, which is a really exciting time for me. <laughs> um, you just can't contain yourself. Girton Fest. Um, and we were at this, yeah, we were at this uh, festival called Girton Festival, and it was a um, really random amazing. festival, actually. It was yeah. incredible. It was in amazing. this amazing, almost like 
sleepy Swiss town where you're playing like down a very long high street and they just sort of threw a a, a gig in the middle of it. But it's, um, not, it's not like South End High Street. No, it's no, beautiful. No. It's like it's coloured houses <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah. like twisty turning kind of buildings. It was it was incredible. Yeah, very strange. Yeah, definitely not like South End. But it was uh, it was good. And uh, I remember we just had loads of time to kill. We'd been touring for a while, and uh, the crew have been awesome with like building us little bits and bobs to keep us entertained. Like one of them was literally an entertainment system with like playstation and tv in and you literally wheel it in in a flight case and it just keeps us entertained like kids for hours and then um <laughs> the other thing they built for us was a little portable studio so um asked the crew to bring the studio up to the dressing room and it wasn't like a, anything glamorous it was just one of these sort of like de- almost like demountable cabin things and sat there messing around with like a essentially what was a glitch plugin and this plugin came up with the nonsense which was the opening riff to one person and uh I remember just showing the boys and they were like, oh, that's that's interesting. Mm. I don't think I said it was good. I think I said it was interesting. That's <laughs> <laughs> normally the way things go. And yeah, we d- I think we took the song home from there to finish it. Yeah, I don't think we did too much with it on the road. No, no I just think that. we spanked it. I think because those glitch effects are something we have um, messed around with before. There's um, a song on Broken Machine called um, I'm Not Made By Design. And in like the, the middle eight, there's like this big riff going on and there's these yeah juttery sustry effects and I think um, that just came from me going on YouTube and looking at you know different guitar pedals and doing research. You're both research. obsessed, like, weren't you? Yeah, for absolutely period. obsessed. Like that's just, how it kept us entertained at yeah. all. You'd like you'd you'd go okay, we've watched everything on Netflix and we've watched so much Peep Show, we can't understand it anymore. And then we just go through a black <laughs> hole of uh, into the depths of YouTube of guitar pedals and yeah, so boring. Talking to Elvis to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sound but, good. But yes. That's what we used to do. Like you know, on, on like long American tours, we'd be like you know, whatever the equivalent of a, a Super 8, basically. Yeah. In a Super 8, just on YouTube, on terrible internet, just looking up guitar pedals. And I found this one, and it's called a Revolver DX. And um, it's from this guy from uh, Germany. And he like, makes them all in his house by hand. They're like amazing bespoke pedals. And the waiting, I think I waited maybe three to four months just, cause, you know, he does them you know, per order. So we got that, and I remember using that on... Um, you know, the Broken Machine tour and so on, on the album. So it's I think it was something in our psyche and that's just something that we gravitate to as guitarists anyway. We love like Johnny Greenwood and stuff and, and uh, Shanti and all these pedal-based guitarists. So, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I think maybe that's sort of somewhere along the line as we're experimenting with this stuff, you know, from a Super 8 in Kansas somewhere, eventually it turns into the first track of the album yeah amazing it's quite funny though because this is a prime example of experimenting with something on a computer and you're programming everything and then going into the studio and going okay how do we recreate this or layer it or make it more exciting and use guitars and pedals and instruments and and get a little bit weird with it and just improve it and um that is one of those things where we didn't even have to think about it we just knew that we could throw that glitch pedal on Mm. And it would be a lot of trial and error and literally take after take just to get yeah. a good one because it's a very unpredictable pedal and you get a lot of nonsense out of it. But um, There's a lot of this as well. Like one of us will be playing the guitar and someone else will be playing the pedal. There's a lot of that on, on the album in general, right. like messing around with reverb pedals, sort of 
as the takes being done to it's get great, these weird effects. I'm definitely better at playing the pedal yeah. than I oh, am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is an art to it. It reminds me of like when you're playing on a synthesizer with filters and resonances and stuff like that. You actually are like almost performing it and um, it does give it more life and you can get way more expression out of doing that. So it's quite nice when we have a dual vision of what the performance is going to be, mm. but also how you're going to automate the effects as the performance is going on. Can we hear what you did in Switzerland then? Yeah, so this isn't actually like the mixed demo, but this is just the, the core components that aren't like compressed or anything like that or aren't going through any effects. So I'll just play you the glitches and stuff first. So we've got the guitar chops here left and right, apparently. Okay. So they've already got this kind of like interplay between them and that by itself doesn't make a lot of sense so it needs anchoring by something that was the like the old intro as well right we had that sort of interplay of the stuff and then i think maybe we strained it out during the actual yeah. recording process because um it was getting confusing for us and everyone else so with that though <laughs> we wanted to make sure that everyone in the room knew when to bang their heads and, <laughs> and get whiplash so we had to put something on the strong beat, so on the down beat. So there was literally just one strum of guitars each time. So you'll hear that here. And then you start knowing where you are because otherwise it's a bit of a mess. And obviously the drums reinforce this. And funnily enough, these drums that I've got are just um, are from Like Animals, which is the song that kind of uh, was a bit of a blueprint for this. So you'll hear if you know that song, you'll hear that sort of sound. And I know it sounds dreadful. I appreciate that. But um, the idea is there. So yeah, that's kind of how the riff started. And there was no song there at that point. And we often will have that sort of amount of music and then sit down together and go, okay, where's the verse going to go? And I think the discussion was that let's just take the riff out and just see how it, how it sounds going to sort of um, what would essentially be a four on the floor and keeping that downbeat riff going underneath it um yeah but essentially that's the the two or the three of you kind of killing time waiting to play at the festival using your little portable studio setup in this room in switzerland and um, are you physically i mean i know that you're playing with the pedals but are you making the initial sound through the guitar into the pedal and then playing with the pedal or are you just playing with the pedal what how are you creating these sounds well, this, all this stuff that you're hearing now is from the demo, which is all programmed using effects that are built into Logic. So this is, there are no pedals, it's straight in. But when we get to a studio, that's when we start building back up, right? Yeah, right. So that's when a lot of the time, especially these homemade pedals, they just have a lot more depth to the sound. So that would have been Dom, I think you were playing the guitar for this and I was uh, messing around with the uh, stutter speed and just as like a, a hold button. So um, you're just sort of like capturing the sound at the right moment. So you've got to get the timing right. So there's a lot of messing around with that. I don't know if you want to play the actual um, sound now, Dom, of what we got from the yeah, studio. Yeah, I've got the, uh, got the final thing here. So this is just the guitar stems. So you'll be hearing, um, yeah, like Joe said, the product of playing and manipulating the pedal. Yeah, so it's got quite a lot more depth and body to it. It just feels, you know, more wholesome, I think, that sound. And also, it's, like, there's a lot to do with, like, 
we're now using real amps versus plug-in mm. emulating software so that it's always going to sound a little bit more organic and just better because amps do sound better than plugins. and um the other bigger change is that well there's two really there's the riff is way less complex in itself it's sort of more of a call and response that you could follow um secondly it has this kind of um if i play it back Yeah, so this version has what we call pushes in it. So rather than the uh, actual riff being sort of on the beat, so it goes, dun, bam, bam, dun, bam, bam. We're now pushing as so a dun, 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 dun. It's a really small change, and to most people, you probably won't even notice it, but it gives it way more energy. And that was a, a bit of a debate and something mm. that we did at like the mixing stage, I think. Yeah, we kept changing it around. And if you actually listen to the song, it does flip between these two things yeah. being uh, pushed and not pushed. Just because sometimes you want to give a burst of energy, sometimes the groove felt better when it wasn't pushed. So it was sort of like quite a big job in just working fi- out, figuring out what, what was better at what point of the song. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, something we didn't even consider in the writing stages, just when we actually got to recording it together as a band and listening to it, you know. A million times it's like okay well, that, maybe this can be a bit better that, this way sure uh, can you illustrate that yeah well so we go from this is how it sounds in the intro so which is the pushed version then halfway through the verse you get a straight version ignore the vocals in the background but yeah you, if you can hear the difference um, mm. if you can't maybe we wasted our time thinking about it too much but <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> Well, wasted conversation yeah, hours. Yeah. Yeah. This is for the jazz fans. Yeah, <laughs> um, but th- th- this is 100% of the stuff that we get we uh, get into. It so. makes so much sense in the verse because you need that straighter bed for the vocal that's all pushing around the beat. Mm. Because after that, Don will show you it pushes back into the what yeah, and it you goes call the next mad. section. Just the, a play out, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So a small detail, but one that um, does actually make a difference. And we notice it live more. It really does help push the song along when we're, when we're playing it together. And so in terms of that rhythm, so you kind of thought four to the floor at the start, but it kind of does go drum and bass. And in terms yeah. of James and what he's doing on the drums, I mean, do you work those drums out electronically or, or, you know, or using programming in some way beforehand and then turn to him and say, right, you've got to play that. Or <laughs> is he there saying, I think I could do this? It's, it's 100% a discussion that um, we all have together and the bed of the drums is, is written at the demo stage 100%. And often there's a lot of chopping around in the drums. So we may think that um, you know the the pre-chorus is good for on the floor and then we might go hold on is the drum and bass section going to be mm. good then is it that's the beauty of working on a laptop you can literally just copy and paste something and then you've got version two of the demo and you can live with them for a bit but um i think it's something I've, i'm going to really exploit the fact we can swear on this now because um there's a there's a channel on my demo called vocal fucked left vocal fucked right um and i'll play you those now and this was us experimenting with vocal production to give it this weird sort of electronic hybrid sound. So, yeah, I'll give those a spin. We lose all control of our senses so slowly, putting up all of our defenses so surely. So, very odd. Wow. Um, and it makes Connor sound a little bit like a robot. Um, there is a drier vocal that is more organic on top of that, but um, the f- next section is followed by something even more weird. This is that what you think it is? This is that what you think it is? 
And if you, <laughs> there's one that vocal was natural. That, that wasn't there. that was Connor just singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, got, I had that down. <laughs> but it starts uh, it starts rising in pitch, and it's quite a cool effect. <laughs> <laughs> and they sound, ridic- they sound ridiculous. It always goes at the end, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit silly. Yeah. But um, those vocals were chopped within an inch of their life because it, it needed to sound super robotic and programmed almost. And uh, we don't do that with Connor on 99% of, his, of our songs because you don't need to. But for a song like this, it was almost part of the, um, the DNA that it was this, uh, this was a kind of overproduced and super programmed vibe. It was... It was part of the the character, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It kind of takes it in a different direction entirely, and, and kind of you know means that it could be Aphex Twin or the Prodigy or, or something mm. like that. But at the same time, it could be Enter Shikari. No, it, it seems to be straddling those worlds in that great way. No, in the old yeah. days, you'd have probably released it as a single with a bank of ten different remixes as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's well, still time. Could, yeah, there's still, still time. Yeah, you I mean, still could. I'd love an Aphex Twin uh, remix of this. Like we actually share a tour manager. Like our, our tour manager also does Aphex, so uh, m- maybe there's some sort of at yeah. some point uh, crossover happen there. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure um, he's busy just counting his cash. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I'm gonna. Bring, I mean, this does seem relevant. So we asked um, some of our, our listeners to come up with questions for you as well, you know, things that they really wanted to find out. And George Miller got in touch via Instagram, and he Hi, was George. saying that moral panic is full of amazing polyrhythms. How do you sense when a song needs that twist? And that was something that you were kind of talking about there a bit, Joe, weren't you? I think it's more of a question for Dom, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Polyrhythms can't get enough of them. Um, <laughs> it's a really good way to make something sound way more interesting than it is. And um, we were experimenting with this um, drum machine called a DFAM, it's by Moog. And um, we basically ended up doing um, a load of uh, programming. And the good thing about this this piece of analog gear is that it will come up with rhythms that you otherwise wouldn't have thought of, basically. And it's only an eight step thing, so you're only going to get a loop of eight hits but it's really really good for interest in percussion and um you can hear it it's sort of like best in the middle eight of moral panic it sort of has these filtered white noise effects which is really cool mm. but also rather than using hi-hats played on the drums or 808 hi-hats we ended up using the noise envelope on it which is which is really really cool for mm-hmm. an interesting way to give you momentum but not just use a standard sample of a hi-hat or play it which makes it sound quite regular so that was quite cool and then um we never really cite the xx as an influence but they've got some really cool percussive guitars Mm. and there's one that comes in on the first chorus that joe ended up putting in and that's got a really cool syncopation too so when you marry that stuff Mm. up um it does just make it more interesting but a lot none of of it is too thought out to be honest it is just experimenting Uh, yeah a lot of it's like feel a lot of Mm. it's experimenting i think that sort of stuff is really the fun bit of recording as well like that a lot a lot of that stuff tends to come a little bit later in the process once you've got the the bones of, of a song and they sort of just elevate it from um, one level to another and that that's just always really fun to experiment with in the studio like uh, yeah some bits can be quite boring like, yeah <laughs> we we learned really early on from a friend of ours um whatever genre it is that groove is pretty much the most important thing within the song whether it's your classic rock so say something as sounds as simple as ACDC, the groove is the fundamental part of it. Mm. To answer this to George's question with polyrhythms, it's as long as we keep in a pocket and there's groove, like our, the masters of that for us 
oh Radiohead there's contrary motion and polyrhythms going constantly but you never feel out of groove you know where the groove is you know where it lands like Dom mentioned earlier um, with Unperson um, so, so it, like Dom said experimenting having fun with it but as long as you're still in the pocket you can kind of use as many polyrhythms as possible yeah great answer it's interesting what you were saying um, about the start of Unperson and how it started from these glitches that you created and then you, you know, took those experiments and, and reworked them again in the studio. But to think that you got a song just from playing around with sound, you know, which is quite different again, you know, because obviously, you know, you write great songs. You think a lot about songs and song structure and how to put together a song. No, and the song is the essence of Nothing But Thieves, ultimately. But all these experiments and all this, in a way, mucking around, that is to help the song cut through. Yeah. With a song like this, though, it, the inspiration does often come from, like, the start of the sonic exploration. Mm. It's not like... Joe. I mean, Joe had, the, like, some of the lyrics cooked up for this anyway, but it was more like, we've got a bed that excites us and then we'll go from there, whereas sometimes... Joe may have a lyric or there'll be a melody kicking around and then we'll go, okay, well, if you've got that sentiment, what music is going to fit with that? And then we kind of work backwards and we'll write a song from the bare bones. But when it is more of a production piece like this, it is about getting the vibe cooked up fairly early on and everyone gets excited by it. And then we start writing and riffing mm. melodies over the top of it. And that's how a song like this kind of forms versus more of the sort of like a song like uh, Impossible or something where we're focusing heavily on the the melodies and making sure that they sort of serve the sentiment of the lyric and all that stuff yeah i think yeah. um i think this one did though ahead. in a sense i would i would say that with the passage of um the verses and stuff we lose all control of our senses i felt like the lyrics of this one dictated what movements we made because we're talking all about the you know the digital age and, and everything online so to make it more choppy and more robotic felt natural with this i actually feel like we wouldn't have got to the pre's, to the choruses without that passage, personally, on this one. Yeah, right? no, yeah, they, they definitely do. And I think um, actually going back to the, the polyrhythms as well, I mean, that subject matter and, say, the sounds mm. of the the demo that Dom was writing, the second part of the verse, where it's the sort of rappy, um, mm. melodic thing, that is adding to the rhythm of the track. You know, mm -hmm. the, it, it becomes sort of one with the music a bit more rather than floating over the top, which is what we do on the next section of the song, the pre-chorus. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that happens a lot because you're sort of the pre-chorus is almost a reaction to the the verse. Like we've done sort of this really choppy rhythmic uh, verse, and then to have Connor floating over the top of it really progresses the song to uh, the next stage. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting how the the two are working together in a way. How the the song is pulling you in one direction, the sounds are pulling you in another direction as well, and you try and. Well, you're kind of being inspired by each, you know, and uh, it's like a rush song. You inspire yourself because it's so long, and <laughs> yeah. by the end of it, you've already inspired yourself from the start. <laughs> it would be great to hear how um, how those work in a way. Like you were talking about the rapping style and then the kind of floating style mm. of singing, and and to hear those contrasts and how you developed those would be great if that's yeah, possible we've, we've got some examples we can do that so we're constantly looking we're not just within this song within every song about how we can experiment with the vocals and yeah like how you can make each section flow into each other without being boring um, and this song is a, is a really good example of that yeah so actually this is the actual recorded vocal this is no longer demo this is from the studio version and you can hear those backing vocals have sort of reappeared 
from the demo, but this is a re-recorded vocal that Connor did in the studio. And you can hear this weird BV going on. Still there. And then going into the next section, which is... This is way more melodic and Connor sort of pushing into his falsetto more. And why have I just made that up? Let's have a listen. It's worse. Cause I'm another one person. You created this mask. You are the grand designer. Revel in our unrest. I literally think the logic was we've gone from something really quite choppy and rhythmical. Mm. Let's go completely the other way. Let's go for something that's more legato and longer, more melodic, uh, different part of the, the voice and the vocal range. And that gives you license to drop back down for the chorus, which is more aggressive, lower in register, and also, well, in terms of being in stomach voice, and mm. also way more rhythmical again. So this is the chorus change from the pre chorus. This is interesting. This song, actually, I haven't even thought about it until now. I guess this is why this is the, the therapy, like you said. This uses quite a few shades of my voice without us even thinking about it. Like, there's another part of the verse which Dom hasn't played yet, which is kind of this, I, I don't know, it was like that Jack White Beyonce song. Um, was it Lemonade? I can't remember. No. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that kind of vocal of the kind of screamy but bluesy vocal. And then the next section is a really low kind of huskier and then goes into falsetto and then pushes into chest. I guess that's because we... We try and use it as an instrument, just like you would find a, a guitar tone or a synth tone. Is that this vocal, this one? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, instead of just singing the kind of the same throughout the entire song, we can use it as a layer and as an instrument and see what serves each section the best. And that's really fun for us to do. Yeah, this is a great uh, song for mm. seeing how how we change the vocal production throughout. And um, it does get weird. Um, I think... In the second verse, there's more more of the same with the um, kind of weird pitch shifting and stuff like that. But then the middle eight, what do we do? Middle eight is all in falsetto and it's um, it takes a step back and the, the vocals take the rhythm over basically because everything is back in half time. We discussed this quite a lot because I think at this point we're like, Jesus, we all need a breather. <laughs> we're like, this has been a bit of like a... You know, you feel like you have been smacked around the head multiple times and you just need to have a second to, you know, get your breath back. So this was about kind of slowing it down, literally in a way, because we go to a half-time fill. So we go from this kind of uh, more regular four-on-the-floor pattern back down to something that's a little bit more, yeah, half-speed. So you'll hear that here. So we go from this... We were discussing that we wanted this to almost sound like quite lo-fi, a bit like you're underwater, and we didn't want any high frequencies in the mix apart from Connor's vocal, and you'll hear that over the top. I'll just play the uh, all the stems at this point so you can hear Connor's vocal in context. I'm just another clone of a clone I'm out here searching for some meaning I'm all in love, I forget what it feels like Still in half time for this section. You can just tell it all takes a step back and it does feel a little bit more sort of spacey and a little bit trippy. And that was kind of the brief at that point because we wanted to then have license to ramp it back up and it feel exciting again. Because if you didn't take it down there, you couldn't keep going because it would just be like, okay, I'm done with this. Yeah, I feel like it was also a moment to give a lot of attention to the vocal. I think 
with a song like this, a lot of the attention does happen to be on the, just the excitement of the track. It's all about the noises going on. Your your attention's sort of taken left and right constantly throughout the song. Yeah. So I think it's very much necessary to have this whole thing going on so you can justify the end of the song. Yeah. Because that's when everything just, go, just kicks off. What, what One of my favourite bits is actually this transition from the middle eight back into the final riff, I suppose you call it, which is you'll hear it in the vocals. There's a sort of spinny out delay which becomes sort of pulsed and I'll, I'll play that over, over some of the drums. Demo again, by the way. And the dog sound is actually in the uh, <laughs> in the demo. Uh, you can hear Henry. <laughs> you can hear Henry. Henry. Yeah, he, he wants to get involved. But um, yeah, that's that section is awesome, and I, I think we can say that because it's not something we'd usually do, and it just gives a lot of excitement to the the bit that follows it. I'm a big fan of that. And it's an interesting choice as the opening track to the album because, in a way, so much goes on in unperson. You know, it's like you're saying to people we're going to do what we like. We can do anything. And and you kind of, there are rock moments in this track, as we you know, we talked about, there are kind of the dance moments. Uh, Connor's vocal range is shown off to great effect. I mean, what a calling card to have as your first track. No, I think you're right. I mean, in some ways it does sum up a lot of the stuff that's going on in the album. In other ways it doesn't. It mm-hmm. is still an avant-garde choice for, you know, if you listen to the rest of the album, it's still a bit left field. Um, but you're right. I think that kind of was a consideration. It was, well don't expect that anything from this album like you're gonna sort of have like a there's gonna be a lot of surprise and i think if you hit yeah. them over you know off the bat yeah. leading with that it just kind of felt right that that was what was going to happen back to nerdsville because <laughs> joe went too interesting <laughs> um, there's a really cool moment in the we actually i was just looking at the lengths of the songs and the studio versions a little bit longer than the demo and i think that's because we doubled the final riff at the end and the reason we do that is it's the first time the live bass, so Phil starts playing the riff along with the guitars and the synth bass is also join in for that and that's really quite cool, you'll hear that here. And I just love how much excitement is added at that point. I mean, it's just uh, it just goes up a notch. used an awesome pedal for this actually which we won't disclose one of Orson's pedals yeah we used Orson shout out to Orson um, <laughs> um, Johnny Orson yeah we used, we used one of Orson's pedals um, to get this bass sound I gave you a trilby in exchange yeah. shout out to Phil though for this bass performance because it is insane and it's one of the best uh, bass sounds I think we got on the record we ended up combining a lot of um, synthesizers and live bass and kind of picking what's going to take the lead at certain points and do we run through the live bass through the synth the one yeah we well yeah we, we literally plugged mental you to ah. get the bu- like low end as fat as you need it to be you can literally run a bass into an old uh moog oh, i can't remember what it's called it'll come to me later but yeah um it's and it gives you a real real solid low end which is probably the most boring thing i've ever said <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we'll top that with uh, the next thing with we're talking about. Boring, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tune in. Um, yeah, I think that kind of covers the the main parts of this song. Right, there's nothing. It is a bit all over the place. And what I will say finally is that trying to get this as cohesive as we could was probably the biggest challenge in the studio. Yeah, 
because section to section, even at mixed stage, we're like, does that sound too disjointed going from, I remember the verse into the pre was a really weird one to get right and then the pre into the chorus. But Mike Crossy helped us along with the production on this one and he's a bit of a genius when it comes to uh, getting from one place to another and he, he got it down. Excellent. Well, we'll talk about Mike's role in just a moment, but maybe we should hear the finished ending to the song uh, before we move on. Sure, I'll play it from the tail end of the middle eight. So this is just as things start um, ramping up again from half time into full time. This is like a bit of a cathartic moment in the song. Yeah. This is kind of what everything's been leading up to. You finally get the, the drum and bass drums. And then at this point, that's when the bass starts following yeah. the riff. Both are going mad. And it's amazing percussion on that as well. I think it's one of the best drum sounds in the record, mm. this ending. And you're kind of forced to enjoy it. You have no real choice. <laughs> So we're kind of live. Oh yeah, <laughs> it is so exciting. Have you had a chance to play that one live at all yet? Not to people. No. <laughs> yeah, not to people. Which That's is kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, it's going to go off, though, isn't it? It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fantastic. No, the reaction to that has been really, really good to that one in particular. Excellent. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back, and we'll be looking at is everybody going crazy in just a moment. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. 
So we're going to hear Is Everybody Going Crazy by Nothing But Thieves now. Um, we're going to have the finished version, a blast of that, and then we'll get into the demos. Person is the opening track to the album Moral Panic and I think it's really interesting because you follow it with is everybody going crazy and you go from that kind of frantic energy of unperson and then you kind of kind of simplify it into a, a more ACDC style rocker at least at the start of the song you know it's like hang on a minute what's going on here yes John yes we do <laughs> <laughs> it's um, great though it's a great it's, I love this riff it's one of my favourite riffs of the album that intro riff I don't know where I was I, re- I remember been away somewhere and Dom just texted me and Connor being like I've got one mm. <laughs> um, rarely I do I have the confidence to do that <laughs> yeah. I honestly do write a lot of stuff that is rubbish and then occasionally I'll be like because sometimes I'll write something and wait for the boys to come over and then show them like five things and then if they like it we write on it and if we don't we just start something else but this one was um, was the rare sort of confidence boost and I just sent it to the boys and um, did I send you the riff then and there you sent us three yeah, versions of the email, riff yeah Three versions. Um, they were different. Um, <laughs> not just because I thought it was that good. Do you have any of those to share? Um, yeah, I think I do, actually. Let's just check this one out quickly. <laughs> oh, wow. So this one's, oh, really, that this one's really different, and I'm really glad we didn't use it. Um, <laughs> this was me taking the riff and trying to make it more... Synth- more psychedelic Synthy and, and psychedelic yeah. and it was like T-Rex meets Tame Impala but really really shoddily done and you'll you'll hear that um, this is actually relevant for later on in the actual song so it did play a part but um, yeah I'll play that now we thought it sounded a bit like Mr Blobby it is Mr Blobby it sounds like Mr Blobby <laughs> Mr Blobby um, <laughs> it literally is. I love it now that one didn't that one didn't make the cut sadly but um, what is different from that old demo to the final song is that that version has chords in it essentially it goes from minor up to relative major and back down and that is what the chorus chords are and without that Mr Blobby piece of music the chorus chords <laughs> wouldn't have existed because we actually wrote the chorus over that and in my original demo that piece of Blobby was still in there now the actual demo the riffs sound like this, so you're only going to have two versions. I can't remember where the third one is. Actually, sounds pretty good. Yeah, so Impressed. that wasn't as bad as the blobby one, uh, but I can <laughs> see why we opted for that. So yeah, that the the main difference, if we're talking broad stroke changes from demo to studio version, was the chorus. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, hugely. Um, and that was a big Mike Crossy winning uh, conversation decision. there, yeah. really winning decision. He um, 
Yeah, I think this song in particular was like we discussed, like quite difficult to um, kind of piece together. And Mike did a good job of this in that one. And the end of the chorus, as Dom was about to explain, um, is vastly different from what we had originally. Yeah. So, and actually, there are two broad stroke changes from the original version that we had to the pseudo version, which is the final sort of third of the song is different, isn't Massively, it? Massively, yeah. yeah that, and that was a decision we made quite near the end of the process as well. I think it was one of those things where us and Mike, we had it in the back of our minds that this was always going to be a conversation. We didn't quite know if the end of the song was quite right. We knew we had to get to it, but it's a big conversation to have because yeah. we liked how it we was. We loved the we, end of the we, song. We liked it's how really it was. interesting, um, yeah. But it, it's one of those decisions where even though you love what's going on at the time, it doesn't serve the song as well. And that's just, sometimes those decisions are hard, but that's something we do, I actually think really, really well. We're always trying to serve the song. And this is, this is a bit of a painful one, but um, I think we made the right decision in the end. Yeah, yeah. I, f- I actually feel sorry think for Mike thinking back to it, because it, it was just, it obviously filled him with so much anxiety <laughs> saying to us, well, I think you should chop off the, the end of the song and just go back to a chorus and that he knew how many demos we do how thought out the, our process is and that we're a band that like care about our songs we're not sort of like indifferent about it and go yeah just do whatever like we we really try and get it right um in the demo stage and he respects that so he did come in knowing it was going to be not a difficult conversation for us pushing back on it but just sort of saying I think the song should end differently is quite a big one. So mm. he's um, also massively stubborn, so it's hard to push back on him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's like <laughs> fighting against two heads. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's it's, a, <clears> a, it's good that it's a bigger decision that we normally have to make in the studio. I'd say changing the end of the song isn't something we normally have to discuss. So I guess having something of that magnitude to actually discuss was just a bit of a bit a bit of a weird one. Yeah. So I'll play you the demo ending, and um, it's pretty crazy. Super Mario, awesome. <laughs> yeah, big sort of synth musical outro into a chorus but over different chords. So yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, then the chorus comes back in here. And it works. Yeah, we really it works loved really it well, but it just makes the song harder to digest, it's harder to understand. So yeah, it, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a weird one because it's, uh, it's not a decision that was made because it wasn't functioning. We, yeah. That's easy. If, it's, if a song isn't functioning well, it's not serving it. That's, that's an easy decision to make. But this yeah. does function to an extent, but we just felt not to, well, you know, not to as, as great an extent as actually yes. finishing with a proper chorus. The, yeah. the thing about this song as well is that it, I would say this is the song of Nothing But Thieves that was the hardest to piece together. And obviously we'd spend so much time writing it this probably took what like two or three to four actual sittings which is normally about seven or eight hours for us each time that you need someone like Mike to take a step back and listen to the whole thing holistically Mm. and go there is something he thinks great in there how do I take that out and how do I piece it together and what is is the best parts of it 
Um, and he did that really well because now in reflection, as much as I love that section, the song would almost be like three to four to five completely different sections. And now it's only three and it just helps. It helps the song and actually gives the message more clarity too, I believe. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just for reference, I will play the um, the final sort of chorus from like transition, at least from the original. And it's all about that returning to home yeah. thing that mm, Mike yeah. was at, about. He wanted that, the cathartic moment of, okay, you've disappeared from the middle eight to this riff. Your mind's been taken away from where you've been for the previous two choruses. But you want that moment of, oh, wow, we're back here and I wasn't expecting that. And you definitely didn't get that from the version before no. because it's a new bed of chords and new uh, new sounds altogether from synths and all that stuff. So it was simplifying it. Um so that was like I was saying there's two big changes that was the first one which was the end yeah. of the song and then working back the second big change was the chorus itself was way way more congested in the demo to the point where it was actually a bit overwhelming so I'll play that now and the pre-chorus sounds pretty similar it's not going to sound drastically different but when you get into the chorus you'll notice exactly what we mean when we say it was a lot busier You can hear that demo track, Mr. Blobby, is underneath there. Which Mike obviously didn't like for some reason. Um, and he was totally right to basically go, this is such a complex and busy vocal that it would be a mistake to have other complex Space, and busy yeah. parts. So he just said, what's wrong with basically having one synth part and one vocal part and you get this, which is awesome. So the chords are exactly the same yeah. and the movement of chords are the same. It's just now got space in it. And, and it, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, this kind of answers that, was it George's question earlier about the polyrhythms where it was too much in that chorus. So the, mm. the vocal has got, oh, it's changing every almost every bar, beat-wise and, and flow. And then you've got, three or four different rhythms underneath that. So to have that all taken away and let the vocal have the room to do the rhythm was a really great decision. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And underneath that, you literally just have a kick and snare on two and four, or one, two, three and four, and, um, and a bass, and you've got it. This was another one where we layered, because basically we, we don't want to be that band that just sounds weedy and weak next to other artists and when hip-hop artists are using 808s and stuff like that or you're at festival and you hear like crazy subs and things like that and you just sound like really small we're quite not conscious of it of like we use it creatively it's not like we're desperate to sound as fat as those bands and those artists but there's more to bottom end than a bass guitar and we'll use layering quite carefully so the bass stem's great on this because it's Phil playing his Thunderbird and an 808 layered, and you'll hear that together. Sorry for bass players. Even in the bass world, they're not the most important part of the bass world. <laughs> 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 not just yeah, the band. they're out of a job now. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're quite an interesting one. That um, I don't know. I think that chorus needed the space because the vocal is so complex. Like mm. Connor said, it was so 
rhythmical and um, it just sounded like a bit overbearing and you couldn't really make sense of it beforehand in the demo. But yeah, Mike sort of filleted the parts and just left in the fundamental bits and then threw in this awesome Juno synth, which is... Um, yeah, that makes a, it. Yeah, it's a Juno, Juno 6. And you can hear this amazing, like, sort of... Um, sandy, isn't it? Yeah, granular, sandy noise texture over the top of it. But it's got the perfect amount of release and sustain, so they're ending just as they need to. That's really nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting, actually, uh, on the demo pre-chorus what you were playing, yep. uh, the lack of lyric and the tuned vocal. Yeah, which we'd it was obviously changed. So we, no, I think we've obviously changed the key at some point. Yeah, which I didn't uh, actually know we did. Which we do it's been, all the time, yeah. it's been demos, pitched yeah. up um, one, and, and and actually sped up. It was a lot slower before. So yeah, Connor's vocal. I'll play you some of the demos so you can hear where it changed. So you must have written it in a different key you've yeah. gone okay this isn't quite right um, mm. maybe the vocal doesn't sound as it's meant to we've gone okay easy quick fix let's just tune everything up a bit yeah <laughs> but that's what we'll take it it's quite funny we'll actually take that into the studio that will be the reference track and yeah. it won't have lyrics it'll be a tuned up sort of chipmunk vocal but you just know everyone can see past that and every, everyone kind of does that to to an extent um, and I quite like the effect of the vocal in that pre anyway to be honest and yeah. it was it was cool yeah, it's cool. So, well, actually, I suppose talking about speeding up and slowing down, that was a considerate. That is what we did, really, for the intro guitars. Oh, yeah. Didn't we? We, we actually sped up and slowed down the track. Yeah, it was all and, done very sped, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, very sped. Yeah, exactly. And then played uh, either a faster or a slower tempo in oh, a different yeah. key and then very sped that. it back down or back up again, depending on what we were doing. And that's why the guitars sound a bit weird. Now, that is fun. And from like a geeky guitarist, point of view sort of something that's quite you know it's just very interesting for us to be able to do but it is a massive pain in the ass yeah that's definitely <laughs> true. like knowing the key to play in when uh, when you slow the track down to a certain speed or track up to a certain speed and then sort of figuring all the math it's maths basically and it's not it's, it's not music be, it's at that so point hard. it's maths yeah. yeah it's lowered so much yeah. and it'll be so and out of tune when you speed it back up and we're playing you know, really fast. Or actually, I actually think playing really slow is even harder to get in the groove and be in the pocket when you're playing at really slow tempo. And then to, to make sure it fits in the pocket when you speed it back up again. It's, uh, it, it took a long time, but it does give the guitars in, in, in the intro and, and the verses like a bit of a, a, a weird feeling, which I like. I've got a recording of how those guitars sounded. This was a video from us doing it in the studio, but this is the very speed and just shows you the extent of the speed that we have to play it at. <coughs> Rack time. Did you really play that fast? Yeah. Like, mate, I'm real. Yeah, so it's, it's stupid really, but it gives you this awesome effect and especially things like vibrato and um, the tone of the amp are really affected by slowing things down and pitching them down again. So yeah, you, especially playing slow when you can get as much vibrato as you, as you possibly can and then that gives such a weird warped feeling yeah. again in the guitar. It sounds like you're yeah. sort of moving at light speed. Yeah. Um, I like to think I could still hear that in the in the track somewhere. Well, yeah, yeah. it's not always nice to think those things make a difference, but yeah. do they? Who do knows? Do they? Um, <laughs> but I think they wasted hours on things that people don't realise. Yeah. Um, I do think they sound. I do think the guitars sound a bit odd though. They've yeah. got something going on. So yeah, I do agree. Um, I think on that note of slightly stranger studio techniques, I think the drums are quite an interesting one because they weren't 
performed as a whole drum part. We spent about two days just getting a kick and snare sample. And the reason we did that was we were kind of working out how we wanted the song to build with the drum part. And Mike really liked the the sort of stuttery groove I got from the demo, which I'll play here. So the kick and snares aren't on the grid. So when I mean grid, it's obviously beats one, two, three, and four. And rather than putting the drums straight on the line like they'd been gridded, I was just moving them side to side to see if I could get a cool sort of swung effect. And you can kind of hear that here on just the kick and snare pattern. And obviously it sounds a bit like nonsense um, in isolation, but the point is Mike loved that so much and thought it was so crucial to the groove that we got these kick and snare samples. So it was a really boring part for James Drummer Price to play, but we, we got them and we just matched them exactly to where the demo placement was. And the only performed bit of drums on the track are these uh, drum fills later in the middle eight of the song. You can hear them because you couldn't program this to sound right. like Phil Collins though. So even the cymbals are overdubbed as well, which is um, an awesome technique that me and Mike love talking about because it's what some of our favourite records, rock records have done and that gives you loads of control over how you can make the other drums sound without getting loads of cymbal bleed into the microphone. So that was another part of the um, the recording process that was a little bit different to recording a standard song. Yeah, it's one of those things, I think once you get to the studio, you really find out what's important to the song and sometimes they're odd things like that you'd think oh yeah we just put live drums over the you know, what we've done this video sound great but sometimes it just doesn't work out that way and you when you try and take them out or change those things it changes yeah. the whole vibe of the song yeah this song naturally feels like it's like a hybrid between a disco song and an old blues song so to use those sort of samples was it felt like to, well maybe more to dom and mike to feel so obvious you know yeah it was obvious yeah, <laughs> um, it's an interesting one though because um, in some ways when you first hear is everybody going crazy you no know, you notice the straight ahead rock nature of it you know and you think of ACDC yeah. but in a way you know ACDC meets disco would sum it up as well um, but you know the surface impression one gets is that it's oh I know what this is all about I know I know what happens here and yet yeah. <laughs> so much more thought has gone into really? it really um, yeah, I think that's quite interesting. But you, no, it's it's like you you had to analyse it in the way that you did in order to get it to feel that kind of groovy and that kind of straightforward. You know, it, it's an interesting thing because it has a kind of timeless aspect to it. And it's interesting, you know, hearing about Mike because obviously, you know, sometimes we take notes. We have the producer with us. Um, in this instance, we have the three of you. But in in many ways, clearly from what you've been talking about so far, you're very, very involved in the production process. And, you know, this extra set of ears and this extra person that you had in the form of Mike Crossy was was very useful for you and useful to you. Um, but at the same time, you do an awful lot of the work yourselves, even before you get in the studio with Mike. Yeah. Uh, yes, you're right, John, is a short <laughs> answer. Um, I think the longer answer is essentially we... Um, we do sometimes get too close to the songs. And like Connor said, Mike did come from a distance and had a fresh perspective on it. And feels this song was, I was about to call it Feels So Good, which was originally what the title of the song was called because I'm looking at a demo. But Is Everybody Going Crazy was probably one that changed quite a lot because we do troubleshoot a lot of that stuff before we get there. 
and we do like to make sure that we uh, we have it in a good spot before we even yeah, speak to anyone. We do, and I think um, just as a, as a general thing, just the way we work, we throw a lot of the demos. Like we put a hell of a lot of stuff in. One because it's hard to make things sound full and fat when you're you know just in a home studio, and two because you're just trying to get as many ideas in as possible. Yeah. And then once you're at the studio, you can start filling the ideas. Yeah. Um, you start taking stuff out and things become a bit clearer. You don't need so, so much stuff in. Uh, I think that's just a general way we work. 100%. Where did you record the album? Los Angeles, California. That sounds good, doesn't it? Mm-mm. Yeah, it in LA. <laughs> LA. Um, Except it, it could be anywhere because you're just in a box. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... So true. I won't lie, it was cliche and great because we were on the beach for our, where lovely. we were staying and we had a be- you know, beach yeah, house didn't we we really would nice. we would swing the double doors open at the back of the airbnb and you'd see like the sun rising and you'd be right on the santa monica beach it was just the nicest place to be place for like head together yeah headspace lovely. wise it was great for that and uh, there was a barbecue out the uh out on the balcony and we just sit there making food together and having a few beers and it was a good good place to wind down um late night barbecues was a, a bit of a feature yeah, because I, I mean, so Mike, he's um, he's got a family out in LA. Uh, he's Irish, but he lived in Liverpool, and worked in Liverpool for a long time, and then moved to LA. Um, he's got a couple of kids now, so he works Monday to Friday and long hours Monday to Friday. But that's so it meant that we have the weekends off as well. So I guess at weekends, one would sleep a lot because long days and so it takes a lot of brain power. But during the week, we'd end up having these late night barbecues, pretty much every night didn't we yeah yeah it was lovely it was, a, it was a good time and um we actually recorded broken machine in la it was a different studio but with mike and in hindsight we may have taken our friday nights a little bit too hard and <laughs> gone for maybe too many drinks and then woken up on monday still feeling it but um this one was a little bit more like let's get an early night and just have a couple of beers and watch the office or something so it was um more tame exactly that and that's why this album's better <laughs> <laughs> interesting such wisdom such but it's hard yeah. won wisdom it seems to me yeah no. so yeah this uh, this song was really fun to record as well I think that's the thing that we haven't spoken about it's, it was an enjoyable for everyone because it was we were unveiling a new thing that we liked about it with every time that we chipped mm. away at it and added something else so um, like I said on some of the other demos they were they were 95% there whereas this one was presenting itself with every day that went by and uh, we were like at the end of the process like how do we get there and I think Mike was very excited about the mix as well when we were leaving him to do the mix and we f- we flew home he was just like this is the first one I'm going to get stuck into because he had a real like I don't know attachment to it he loved this tune yeah this one first wasn't it they're the first two that he got stuck into to, to mix yeah we were actually in Thailand we played like a festival in Thailand didn't we it was our first festival yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh, that's just such an anxious wait once you've done the recording and you're waiting for the mixes back because I'm not did we have desk mixes I'm not no, really sure we did I don't Mike, think he sent them over Mike doesn't like giving desk mixes to people because and I, I totally get it you just start becoming a bit in love with it and he actually makes slight changes to things like only very small things but minor details that you might might fall in love with and he needs time away from them as well. He actually took a couple of weeks off to get away from the songs before he started mixing. And so, yeah, it was a bit of a gruelling wait. But I do remember, this sounds so stupid, but we was just sat on a beach having a drink and in Thailand somewhere and then got this email through and I was like, I'm going to have to run back to my hotel room and just listen to this. And yeah. I went back to the hotel and I was like, he's absolutely smashed this. And it just makes you more excited for the other tunes. Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, it, I'm, I'm always intrigued when people 
you know, hear these mixes in a strange location, you know, are you just ending up listening on headphones? It doesn't seem the most, you know, when you've been working in a big studio with an amazing uh, sound system and and you want to hear the mixed version that way. But because of the necessities of of touring and time, and you end up in a in a hotel room, you know, kind of on iPod, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or that's iPhone. Ex- that's exactly head- it. Headphones. It, it doesn't sound ideal. Actually, pretty good. To yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, as as much yeah. as, as I want much that endorsement, I need to talk them up more. Tonight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> as much as that's true. There is something nice about hearing it the way most people are going to hear it. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly that, that. That, that. The way I actually um, consume most music in sort of my um, early adult y- years was in my car. I did loads of like delivery driver jobs. So I used to listen to music constantly all the time. And that was my reference point. My, my speakers in my car was, I, I knew exactly how things were meant to sound in that environment. And I guess now it's more headphones. I live in London, I don't drive much anymore. But um, that's why you hired a tuk-tuk in Thailand. <laughs> that's it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and driving <laughs> around the <laughs> cassette player. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, it, yeah, I mean, it's nice to hear on I have to tell you speakers as well, but... But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I actually think that, weirdly, like, average headphones, just some, you know, Apple headphones or all other good retailers' headphones, um, <laughs> are really good. Because it's exactly like Joe said, it's listening to it on what your general public would listen to every day. And, it, yeah. and I think Mike's really good at getting a mix that, that fits in that world anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So in a way, that is the mm-hmm. best way to hear it. You get the real experience so. as everybody else exactly. will. And if it works then, you know, yes... We've got it. Exactly. Um, Before we move on to the next song, um, let's hear another section of the finished master of Is Everybody Going Crazy uh, that we haven't heard so that we can witness uh, Mike's skills again. Maybe the pre. We haven't played the pre yet. such a great head nodder isn't it <laughs> yeah that's uh that's the song I hope you enjoyed it, John. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. Is everybody going crazy? We're going to take another quick break and we'll be back to talk about a real love song. And now the third song we're going to look at from Moral Panic by Nothing But Thieves is a real love song, which sounds like I'm saying it's a real love song, but that is actually the title, um, a real love song. Obviously, everybody knows that. Um, So where did this one start? How did this one start? We were in East Grinstead, of all places. Second to <laughs> LA, yeah. uh, in my books. Um, we, did, we, did that, we did that thing where you sort of exhaust writing in one spot and you're like, okay, let's go away. And uh, me and the boys got this place, a little Airbnb, a couple of hours out of London. And we just um, set up a little studio in this really cool, like, sleepy village town. It was like, you know, the, and the Airbnb had, like, chickens and, like, this amazing garden. It was mm. quite tranquil. And it was, it was a good good little headspace to be in. And 
this song was towards the tail end of the writing, right? This was one of the last ones. Yeah, yeah one of the last ones. Yes, it was. Maybe sec- second to last one. It was penultimate day because we got really drunk that night and didn't write the next day. I remember that. <laughs> we, we, it was we, a write-off. We, we had done day. our work. We, yeah, we, 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 like, we had got yeah. Real Love Song. Yeah. Like, work, right, we've got one song out of it. Let's go that, to East Grinstead's pub. Let's go to the Swan. Yeah. yeah. Um, try and win the pub quiz <laughs> which we did yeah <laughs> and then we, because we felt like we owed the community of East Grinder said something we we put the money that we won behind the bar and bought everyone a drink so you know they, I'm sure they were grateful for that now we're local heroes yeah we got the key to East Grinstead yeah exactly <laughs> whichever, whichever one's after yeah. it's a bit rusty but we've got it um, that's impressive public relations I think that's, oh yeah uh, um, but this song started um, with a really really simple bass slide hook it was a little 30 second instrumental and it just had this sound here and it's just two chords which are F and D minor for those who care and it automatically put us in a in a headspace and a a vibe and the boys were like this one's good and it's funny because I don't know why I would have normally have skipped over that but we just you know, we gravitated towards it and it was lucky that uh, it got played. And uh, yeah, the melodies came fairly quick in terms of verse, right? Yeah, so this is one of the ones where um, I already had like a set of lyrics. I, I knew the, um, it's, it's kind of like wordplay, the verse is always ending in love or sad. It's kind of just like a little word exercise. And that's what I'd been messing around with. And it just seemed to fit the mood of the track that Dom was creating already. And I love that. It, it makes the job so much easier when they, they marry up like that. Um, so it's just a case of getting a melody from that, wasn't it? Absolutely. This is one of those songs which comes along rarely when you write that the kind of holistic, I'd say, kind of synergy of it all works at the same time mm. and it fits so well. Um, sometimes, like even like a song like this, Everybody Going Crazy, you have to chop and chop and chop and make it work like we discussed. Whereas this was fairly easy in a sense it came fairly quickly and um, each section we just knew what you were going to do it's a fairly simple song in a sense but that's kind of the point of it yeah it's just two sections really Mm -hmm. Um, the middle eight is kind of a verse with different chords underneath it that's essentially all that happens the chorus we did go around the house a little bit with just because we were, I guess we were trying a bit too hard with the chorus I think yeah I thought it came quick no there was another version yeah there's another version I'd love to hear that uh, I remember it it was just too much. Like we were trying to write, I guess, a more traditional chorus where the, the one we've ended up with is quite, it's, it's a bit of a weird chorus. Yes. Really. There's not too much to it. It's more of... I think it was particular. Like, that was, there was for a reason for that. I remember us thinking the song could have too much of a quote unquote stadium feel, that kind of springsteen thing, which is obviously, it's fantastic. And I do think we said, all right, why don't we try something where it's a half chorus and a build, something maybe arcade fiery, something like Rebellion, mm. where it just has that lift, but doesn't fully go into a chorus. Um, and that was something, we hadn't done that in a song before. That was a new technique for a chorus, for writing yeah, a chorus. Yeah, the payoff, the, which I guess is yeah. what in some way the chorus is, is, is the, the, the music, the isn't it? Yeah. So rather than uh, the actual vocals, I mean, especially for our band, that's kind of unusual yeah, to do. I'm glad we did it. Yeah. With that in mind, we had this call and response vocal and it was basically like Joe was saying, the wordplay and highlighting that. So in the demo, you'll hear that those response vocals have a slightly different treatment and uh, like slightly sort of more depth than, uh, than the lead vocal to give it separation. 
<laughs> Connor was doing these crazy, oh, that's great, crazy sort of it's uh, so almost Bowie esque that thing. Where, yeah, like, it's uh, very character based. Yeah. Well, this whole song feels character based, even thematically. Yeah. So to be able to get into headspace vocally as well was a was a real treat. <laughs> rip out the whole of your soul, love. I hate myself for days, love. You found the vocal. This is from the demo. Nice man. So that's recorded in East Grinstead. Yeah, yeah and you can hear it. You can, yeah. <laughs> you can really hear it. Um, but yeah, this uh, this this vocal was a tricky one because Connor was uh, was conscious of over delivering it to an extent and making it sound too over the top. Mm. So we we went around the houses again with the studio version yeah. of how much of a delivery you put on it and how exaggerated this sort of character was because we didn't want to come back and. Um, yeah. People go, he doesn't sound like himself because, you know, I don't, Connor can't say, actually he does say this, but he's got a great vocal and we don't want to spoil it. So, um, <laughs> can't show him off of that. Actually. Yeah. Shut up. Thank God they edit, edit this <laughs> after. It was, that was interesting though. It was, um, I guess when we wrote it, it was about enjoying the character-based part of it. And then when it came to recording it it's a whole different beast and it's a whole different headspace you get into and especially f try and find a, a place to sing from and this one naturally it's like the first take you do of it and what it makes you feel and what you want to deliver tells you a lot obviously it's good to almost like with overdubs to think again but I still wanted to convey the emotion with sincerity and like actually be realistic rather than just be too hey I'm doing a Bowie thing here or you know to like character based so it was finding a middle ground and and like Dom said it was actually a little tricky to like I would say this is the first song well, one of the first songs ever where we had a bit of demoitis where it was like we love so much about the demo and we had to find a place where we were really happy with with the new one it was it felt like a different beast it was a different song but obviously we're over the moon with how it turned out otherwise we wouldn't have made it yeah I'm just looking at the core components of the demo to sort of see what was building it up. and um, That telly coming in was a big one for me in the verse. I actually love the way it sounds in the demo of the telly, this one. Should, should we just build it up from the start? Yeah, so you just go do that per, what comes in or, section. Yeah. yeah, I feel like drums may be missing, which is a big one, but we'll go. This is a love song, real love, dirty, rip out the whole of your soul, love. Delayed piano as well. Don't Yeah, quite used to it, isn't it? Yeah. the guitar Connor's talking about and what's cool about this uh, guitar is that you've got the standard electric guitar plugged straight into the computer and I've recorded a version through a microphone so you get this picky sound so together you get this cool percussive blend yeah it almost yeah, feels like acoustic-y because you get the actual percussion from the strings yeah so if you take it out you really miss it there yeah. and then the context of the other stuff and then this is a good time to say, well, as we introduced synths, that this was probably the, one of the most synth-based songs on the record. 
it's something that we've been experimenting with more and more. It's just so good when you get it right. I would say we were quite cautious at first because it is quite difficult to integrate synths into rock and do it properly. Sometimes yeah, it can some, sound a bit... We, yeah, something we actually talk about quite a lot, do, I think. Yeah. I mean, not, obviously not going to name any names because I like them, but there are certain bands nice that life. don't, I feel, integrate synths into their rock music that well. I think it... I guess they want to try and make it modern and updated, but they almost make it seem more dated than if they didn't yeah. use them at all. So that's just very something we're really conscious of. We're really, really picky with the synths we use. We go through like a lot, a lot of research and a lot of different sounds before we, we get the right one. It's really important, I think, for, yeah. for the, the sound of this album. A lot of the synths on this record were Junos, Prophets and Moogs. And they're like, you're kind of, for me, they're the go-tos as it stands. And, uh, before we even got into the studio with Mike, I was using like Arturia versions of that because they do software versions. And I'll play just the synth arrangement here going into the chorus. It's mad um, how much you miss that little hook, the little ear candy of that, but <laughs> oh, yeah, which is yeah, made on, song. Yeah, yeah. on the main yeah. song. Interesting, though. Yeah. So we recreated every single sound mm. of those. I had to sit there with the actual hardware version of The Prophet and actually try and patch in all of the sounds, which was quite time-consuming, but they have so much more of like a 3D fullness and depth and mm. they, the, all the filters sound better and all that stuff. So Do that, put it through the tape machine. And Sounds then, good. And then you're golden. Yep. Um, <laughs> and Connor was just referencing another part that's in this, mm. um, in amazing. the final version, which is this kind of swelling, almost like sci-fi sound. I don't really know how to describe it's, it. I just mess around with Mike with yeah. a guitar and um, just was it on the guitar? pedals. Yeah, was it? Yeah, it's it, was, it was on one and, of your um, no, doodles. it's a guitar and it's an even tied yeah. pedal. Nice. In fact, I think it's down there. Um, yeah. It's amazing. It's an extra the, hook. It's that H nine or something. The rhythm is so catchy in my head. I'll try and find an example of that. Oh, it's amazing. So that was really an, just an exercise of messing around with this even tired. Was it the rack or the pedal we used? I think that? it was, was the it? rack, but was it's it built bad? off of this guy. Yeah. It's H9? Even tired H9 harmonizer, yeah. which looks like that, John. Yeah. Looks so good. It was, it's just about playing just random stuff, I suppose, and just messing around with the pedal until mm. you find a sound that is what you're after. It's not. It's really pure experiment. There's no trying to find like a, a great guitar tone or trying to work yeah. out the part like properly. Anything, any like that. It's literally pure experiment, which is which is so, so good fun about to being do. in the studio. Like, isn't yeah, it? I love, it's I love that again, part. It's completely because yeah. a lot of um, I think a lot of being in the studio in general is about recreating. Mm. You're recreating the demo a lot of the time. You're trying to better the idea you have already. So to have like a pure creative outlet in the studio as well, so it's quite it's nice. Um, I think other bands that maybe don't demo as hard as we do, probably have a bit more of that in the studio, but because we do so much work before we get there. Um, it's nice to have those moments where you nice can have, be yeah, super it is, yeah. fresh and recreate. Um, I'm now going to move forward into verse two. We can talk about the drums, actually, which would be a good place to start. Like Mike is, for me, he's incredible at mixing, producing and engineering, but like as a drum engineer, he's probably one of my favourites. He's just like gets the best drum sound um this was cool because we ended up it's the first time he said he'd done this he'd move into a new studio last year 
and he had this huge corridor with these amazing tiled floors like that went down the whole length of the corridor and um I was like it'd be great if we could get like a gated snare drum reverb and like bit 80s and he was like okay we can do that by doing this that and the other and I was like have you tried the corridor yet he was like I haven't so we swung the the drum room out open put two very expensive mics in there and just um we had it basically that microphone would only sound every time the, the snare drum would hit which is called like gating and it's like very um Phil Collins but uh you can kind of hear that in the drum sound yeah you can hear it open on the mm. snare I remember not being able to leave the studio for about three hours because they were gating. <laughs> yeah, you can't, cr- you can't <laughs> creep, really creep around, around in the background. I, I, I really want to go for a smoke. Come on. Hurry up for us. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is actually the first thing we did in the studio. Was we it? we yeah. did the drums to this song. So, Fantastic. And, and he it. smashed it. So like it was a really exciting oh, start God. to the process. Yeah. It was. Yeah, this song, we definitely knew we wanted to record this song first. It was one of our favourites from the get-go. So there's, there's a great moment... Um, going from the first part of the verse into the second part where Price goes from the floor tom into the hi-hat and uh, we spent ages working out how far ahead of the beat the hi-hats needed to be versus the kick and snare and you can hear him doing it there and it just pushes the whole groove along. Yeah, and those hi-hats making sure he played it robotically, you know, so it had that feel. Great drum sound. So good. And then down to the floor, Tom, here. There's a lot of building up, so we told Price to really be dynamic. So it gets louder here. Ready? Then back down again. And this is a big crescendo, so it's getting building up. And those swells in general, just not in everything, not just the drums, the synths, they're so important for that chorus. That's what the chorus is kind of built around, having Mm. these movements, because there's not much else going on. Yeah, stuff like that was decided in in the writing process. It was like, how do you make one chord interesting? Because it doesn't do anything else. Like, the melody is obviously soaring over the top, but musically, Mm. what's interesting about just hitting the same floor tom and staying on the same chord? And it's the movement and the dynamic swell of going Mm. back and forward and and wondering when the release of that tension is going to come. And we string it out for, obviously, the whole chorus, and that's what makes... Some would say too long. Yeah, some would say too long. We should have halved it. (laughs) But... um, it makes that release moment way more satisfying when you finally hit the... Uh... And then back down to floor tom. This song had an, a vibe from the start of it, though, which is what Connor was saying about the demo-itis thing, and it was trying to not stray too far from it. One of the core components was this ambient sound, which is awesome. Which was just a series of stretched-out guitars that were reverbed and stuff like that, and you can hear that in the final mix, because Mike was just like, we need to keep that, we need to keep this, and it's just, it was about picking and choosing. Yeah, he was great with Dom and that, in a sense, where he, if something worked it was going in the track. It would maybe be put through tape or something like that, but if it worked, he was like, yeah, that's amazing. You know, it wasn't, there was no producer ego for either of them. It was just about servicing the song, like Joe always says. Yeah. Mike's an incredible engineer as well. Like he knows how things should sound because he's doing the mix. He's like, okay, we should redo this or we should, we can keep that and that's usable or yeah, it just needs to be run to tape. So it's a little bit sort of uh, saturated or whatever it is. So 
he has that foresight and and fully gets it, which is why it works so well for our process. We walk in with what we think are fully fleshed out demos and then he'll go, okay, let's pick the best bits and re-record the bits we need to record. And then we come out with something that's like a real hybrid of both of those. And it's um, it's the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such an interesting track in, in that way in that it is really atmospheric and yet it has this kind of pounding quality to it as well. And then the words are really interesting, the way that you're playing around with those. I mean, with the, the album as a whole, um, it's a very questioning album it, lyrically it is mm. you're looking at the state of the world both from a personal perspective but also in a wider sense too i mean how do these lyrics come about is it a joint effort then uh, so i write the lyrics um, so that's all you joe yeah i think i think as, as i said earlier this was like the first time where we kind of had to decide what we wanted the album to be about mm. before the, it was kind of reactionary it was okay well, this is our first album it's exciting we were sort of getting influences from everywhere, doing whatever sort of seemed to work at the time. The second album was kind of a reaction to sort of our surroundings and touring so much and the effect they had on us. So this one was a bit more considered. It was sort of looking at the state of the world. And I think, uh, you're right as well, by the way, there's a lot of questioning going on. So although it talks about a lot of issues and really the album's sort of the effect on on people, you know, this, mm. the the tension on people, the the sort of overbearing nature of of all these um, issues on 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 the human condition, but that's what I think there there are a few question marks in 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 the titles on the album because it is we're not saying we know the answers. That's not what the album's about. It's not about being preachy. It's about um, it's reflection. It's, it? it's a reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's trying to hold up hold the, mirror the mirror to yeah. to what um, everyone's trying to feel right now. That's what the aim of the album re- really was. Yeah, made me question things I hadn't thought about. <laughs> that sounded like Just really dumb. sounded really deep. <laughs> sounded really deep, but it wasn't that deep. <laughs> it's interesting though because then Connor gets to sing these words, and I think definitely from what we've been discussing, you know, Connor's voice has such range and variety to it that it's very much treated as a, another instrument. I mean, obviously it is, but um, it's almost as if. You know, the words come from this direction and then it's like, how are we going to sing those words and how are we going to sing it in such a way that works with this music that we're creating? And it's interesting because it seems to me that Nothing But Thieves have a very analytical approach to everything. You know, in the way that... that, But in a really really objective fashion. You know, it's, it's almost as if it's quite emotional, the music that you create, but at the same time, you look at things and create that music in quite an objective and um, open-minded way. 100%. Our kind of ethos is it's, it's always about the song. Whatever the song wants, I'll find a place within the songs. You know, the songs are our babies all together. Do you know what I mean? Everything we, we want to talk about. And I'll find that place and see what, for me personally, how how it's conveyed emotionally in the best possible way. And I found over the years of, of using my voice loads of different shades and, and what I can pull out and what I can use. And, you know, and Mike, again, who we recorded the last record with, was really good at kind of going, oh, maybe try this shade and this person, this sort of stuff. And because um, and each time you could do real love song, I could do that in a completely different way. I remember I got messaged by some vocal coach being like, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. And it's just like, cool, great, good to hear. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I was fine. It's not, it's nothing about technicality. It's about emitting the right emotion for that song and making that connect because that 
connection will last forever. Sometimes you sing wrong to fit the song as well. Yeah. I've noticed that, like technique-wise, like you're saying, 100%. sometimes you will deliver a line that you'll know is technically bad for your throat or diaphragm and it's just going to probably chew you up, but it's for the tone and it's for the right sort of delivery. 100%. I just find as a singer, the singers that I've resonated most towards, are, say two of my favourites would be Nina Simone and Jeff Buckley, and that's just because even if they were singing, you know, an old classic, an old standard or a showpiece, it's just the way they find themselves within it and the way to deliver it that makes a lasting connection. And I think I, it, it can be, yeah, in a way that is over-analytical, but that's just the way we do it. It's like every single thing we choose. But it's all about, yeah, how you can break it apart and make each section of the song emotional. And then again, like you said, it just servicing the song in the best way possible. This song was fundamentally one take though, right? A this lot was, yeah. This was Mike actually being really strict upon it. I think, yeah, I did this one, well, the majority of that take in one take. And again, I'm really... Um, what's the word, pernickety, I guess. I'm a bit of a perfectionist with it to the point where I'm like, is there enough there to look at after? And we went out for lunch and he was like, uh, this is probably one of my favourite recorded vocals ever, so you're not changing it. And I was like, oh God, and freaked out. <laughs> I was like, I really love the song so much. I felt like this could be a really great song for us. One of my favourite songs we've ever done. I've, I was worried. I remember dragging Tom and Joe to the side being like, I don't know what to do. Like, we've got to do more takes. But he just stuck with that. Great. He was like, that's it. Yeah. That's uh, It's not going anywhere. I was like, all right, mate, I trust you. I think you're right as well I th in the fact that we do have a subjective and objective nature to the way we work. The subjective, the emotion of it is, mm -hmm. which is natural. I think it's something you don't really have control over so much. The objective part of it, the analytical, we really do. And I think us knowing that fact, that's just hard work. That's just what the amount of work that you put into yeah. it. Some artists just completely have it I guess, I guess objectively they just they just have an innate thing um, some artists get lucky and I think that's probably why you get one hit wonders where they just stumble across something that's amazing like off the bat um, and I guess we put so much hard work and analysis into it because that's just our craft that's what we had to learn from being you know just musicians to being songwriters it actually makes me laugh because um, we were talking about this a few weeks ago when the album came out and I was saying to the boys, like, I just don't read the reviews, and I think I, I sort of, I'm trying to convince these two to not to read reviews either. Um, Never. Basically, because I think reviews are right, if they're glowing reviews or if they're really negative reviews, neither are good for the psyche of a band. I, I think so. either way, they're going to affect the music you create next, and they really shouldn't. But it does make me laugh. Like, if, if uh, I hear something, oh, like, you know, that's that he haven't really thought about this, so maybe this could have been better because of this reason. And I'm like, we definitely have thought about it. It's, it's, because, it's this way because we really wanted it to be this way. And then yeah. if they don't like it, that's fine. But don't dislike it for it not being thought about. Yeah. It has been thought about. Yeah, it's it's brilliant having this conversation with you to to discover just how much thought goes into it. But I um, mean, the reviews, the reviews serve a, a different kind of purpose in a way. They're to alert people to the existence of the music, I think, and yeah. to make yeah. people get interested in it. So they, they kind of serve a different function. I don't think they're mm -hmm. report cards back for the band. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah. so true. I, I don't, I don't even know. 
you know, you've, you've already That's gone really through that process, you know, in many ways, you know, exactly. at so many yeah. different levels, so both personally with your producer, with the record label, with management, you know, you go through and, and you get to, you know, when you play the songs to an audience, that's another form of review, isn't it? I mean, and as you were saying earlier on, you know, when you perform songs, you get to discover what the strengths and weaknesses are in terms of how they cross over to an audience, you know, when they're actually there enjoying the music with you and what they respond yeah. to, you get a real sense of of mm-hmm. what things you're doing with your music and, and how you both perform them and deliver them and, you know, the way they 100%. all go together. You know, I mean, that's all part of the process, isn't it? I mean, should we run through this song as each part comes in? Is that what we were going to do next? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I'll just slowly introduce each part as it comes in. Okay, so crazy drum sound over the top. This is where the bass gets introduced. <laughs> Back in vocals. <laughs> okay, guitar riff. There it is. <laughs> it's actually a layered synth and guitar. Thing. Yeah. There's a piano over the top of that. And this is where way more of the synths come in now. It was really dense at this point and then everything drops out. Yep, everything goes back to zero here. I love how simple there's a shaker that's just over the top. More synth work comes in there. Here's that ambient stem, this, uh, that sounds crazy, so good. It's a big hook in it now, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's mad. It's so swirl, it just makes your, your head swirl. Well, it just makes it, it yeah. adds to the tension. Yeah. And then this, the main hook. So that was using the Eventide H9000, the rack version of that pedal that we were talking about earlier. Oh, gang vocals. Oh, yeah. Another fun oh, fun part of it. It's always done at the end of the studio. Last day. When we've drunk. got, like, you know, we, yeah, but basically, drunk, we've got a corked bottle of uh, champagne and we're just <laughs> screaming stuff our lungs. Oh, it's great. It's like pre drinks, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this uh, Mellotron's <laughs> pre drinks, gang vocals. <laughs> this Mellotron's awesome as well. This. Mm. It's like an old uh, sort of Beatles esque cello string thing. Delay piano again. This is where sounds off a piano. Les Paul in hand. I've requested 10 fans for this. 
Yeah, I love at the end of this song, it just does it does all the right things. Yeah. Uh, they got a crazy synth over top. Yeah. And then you end up kind of where you started with a with a bass, delayed piano, and that ambience. And just a classic delay swell because it's just the easiest way to end a song. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's all great. in there, apart from the lead vocal, which you may notice wasn't in there, and that's because I've lost it. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> luckily, it's on the album, so that's all right. Yes, luckily. Yeah, yeah you can find it on, on the album, so you're okay. Um, so um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, go on, John. No, I was just going to say, great to hear, hear the song kind of built up in that way. Um, I was just going to go back to another one of these these listener questions that we had that kind of relates to this. Um, so Ro got in touch via Twitter to say, what was your process when deciding the track order for the album? And it's interesting that A Real Love Song was the first song that you started working on, uh, one of the ones that you were really excited about. Earlier on, we talked about Unperson and how you know that was the last song, but you ended up putting that at the start of the album. I mean, when you've gone to LA and you've worked on all the songs that you've demoed uh, so carefully. Have you gone there with an idea of track order at that point or is it only once you've gone through that whole process of recording them that you work out what you're doing? Both slightly. Yeah, Yeah, I think there are certain things like um, uh, when we wrote On Person that probably was just going to be the the start of the album. It felt like an opening gambit. The last track on the album uh, Before We Drift Away that has like a a finality to it um, just the way it sounds so I mean once you have the bookends and then you start looking at the middle and you go okay well this area sort of track nine and sorry probably eight or nine we're probably going to need a bit of breath here because you know it's quite a dense album in general so then you start putting in um, free if you want it the flow of it is yeah, incredibly it's, important it's like a set you know it's exactly. it's designed to be listened to we write albums you know it's designed to be listened to in one whole sitting you know, so having the peaks and the troughs is really important in the right places. Otherwise, it could be too front-ended, too yeah. heavy at the front, and then you're just kind of exhausted by the end of it. It's yeah. just quiet for us. This this record was quite, in, in a sense, exhaustive. It's got a lot of detail and a lot of yeah. of theme. Um, so to have it's those dense. moments... Yeah, it's dense. To so have those well, moments. I say yeah. that for this album in particular, we were conscious and also became part of the process that it was really dense. It's dense lyrically. The production's dense. There's a lot going on. It feels heavy. It feels chaotic, you know, and that was, you know, it's, a, it's an album called Moral Panic. It just felt right to do that. And we didn't really take our um, foot off the pedal in that way so much because of that reason. Having said that, it's still got to be a pleasurable listening experience. So I think, as I say, like having tracks eight and nine have, you know, a little bit more breath, maybe. I think we put Phobia after Real Love Song because, you know, it, it culminates in such a, a big finale. It's so such a big anthemic moment that you need like the big drop which is why it just, it just drops into phobia which is you know just a vocal and and a small drum loop really so same with in, uh, can you afford to be an individual into yeah. um, before you drift away it's like yeah. can you afford to be an individual it's probably the biggest ending we've ever done it, it's ridiculous the scope it gets to that you need to drop right down into mm. a really soft palette after that so I think once you have you know certain place markers you know that you've bookended it and you, you mm. know sort of things where things kind of be things fall into place after that really again very analyzed <laughs> yeah yeah but no well the results speak for themselves you know it pays off to have this approach 
I think, and Thank you can you. really hear it on the record. Um, before I let you go, we have a couple of uh, repeat questions that we always like to ask people. One of them kind of ties into one of our listener questions as well. So Latimer Rogland got in touch via Instagram with regard to uh, what hardware and production tools you use. Maybe that's a Dom question. I don't know, but it seems to apply to you all because you're all kind of interested in your gear. Um, <laughs> yeah. Here we are. Dom Mortar. We, we use Logic Pro for demos and we go to Pro Tools for recording. Logic is just what I've learned for so long and I'm so quick on it now that it would it would almost seem like a step back, even though I know Pro Tools a little bit. I just can't get the ideas down when they... Like my brain almost happens faster than my fingers can, so I can't always um, sort of get that down. So yeah, Logic has been the go-to... Uh, piece of software in terms of gear i mean it's constantly changing um for vocal chain it's uh, a u67 or u47 and a neve shelfer channel which we just, i've managed every to single get. time isn't it we just we, it we, just, we try like six mics and then it's just always go back to the u67 yeah. or u47 on the first record but yeah. You, yeah you end up on that and then since like i said juno profits moogs and Korg ms20 and then guitars are just all over the shop along with pedals and amps we don't settle on those we're constantly changing those um live joe and i play i play vox and telly and joe plays generally gibson and um like les paul and a, a marshall but that or that's gretch. yeah or gretch and that doesn't affect what we do in the studio one bit to be honest yeah. if we were to be that band it would limit us i think um, that's just I mean uh, live is more broad stroke it just it, it yeah. just has to be you can't have the the level of detail that you you have in the studio so I mean largely we sort of split up into humbucker for me and telly mm-hmm. for Dom and single core for Dom but it moves around a bit depending on what the song needs yeah and you, obviously you can't use things like Neumann's live vocally yeah they're it's just too really good cardioid is important I use a Heil which is fun. Yeah, it's a great mic. So, yeah, that's a few of the bits. But to be honest with you, it is constantly changing, which is why it's so exciting. I think every time we get in the studio, we discover something else that we like, and um, it's a big part of the process for us. Yeah, yeah. Is there any particular gear or plug-in that you're loving right now at the moment that is the new um, thing that maybe on the next album yeah. will be the featured Ooh, thing? you know what? It's a really boring gone. The, no, the little... God, I've just forgotten the name of it, but the little keyboard that we did use in um, Impossible oh, is really important. Yeah, the OP1 yeah, is good. Yeah, we've been using that a lot. Which is... Uh, a small synth by a company called Teenage Engineering, which is great. It's really good for like everything, basically, for so vocal good. sampling, for synths, polyphonic synths, monophonic synths, arpeggiators, all that stuff. Um, in terms of plug-in, I've discovered this thing called Soothe, which is a basically will take out any harsh frequencies for you by itself, and you can tell it how much to do that by. So if you've got a vocal that's really exciting, but a loud level would take your ears off, you can throw Soothe on it and it will pick out specific frequencies and duck them out automatically for you. And that just saves so much time for me because normally I'd have to go through and listen or, you know, go through with an EQ and pick out loads of annoying frequencies. But yeah, so that's a nerdy plugin, but a very, very useful one. Yeah, that does sound useful. Um, One last question, advice. Do you have any advice for people about anything <laughs> yeah um, and now are. this could be advice that you've received from other people or advice that you've kind of learned through your own experience our managers um said really early on when we were like 18 19 um that no one wants to hear shit songs basically what i'm trying to say with that is write and write and write and write until it becomes a natural thing it wasn't for us at all at the start it was um a lot of discovery about i'd say almost three years of figuring out writing until it became a muscle um, thing. So I would just say, write until you um, 
you become better, essentially a better writer, an actual writer. That's really important, I think. Yeah, being a live band and being a writer is very, mm, very, very different. different. And I think most bands especially probably come from the live element first. That's just what you want to do when you're, when when you're, you're learning a kid, yeah. musician, you're, you're, when you're learning an instrument, you know. I picked up a guitar and within six months I was in a band and I was playing gigs and stuff. That's just how, that's just how we did it. So learning the other skill was really important and took a long time. I would say for me personally, it was um, about like copying other people's songs and learning what makes them tick because uh, that really helped me understand arrangements and production and tones and stuff like that. And never use that directly when you're writing. That's not what I'm saying, but learning those songs and making sense of them and studying them was really, really beneficial. And you start like understanding why your palette leans to certain favourite bands. You might be like, oh, that's why I like... Radiohead or Queens of the Stone Age or whatever band it is because they use this style of recording for their drums and they sound like this. So that was always really helpful for me early on. I think um, vocally as well, if you, um doesn't matter what range you have, whether it's, you know, one to Freddie Mercury, it's like as long as you know where you're singing from and you find a place, I think you can emit any emotion within like two to three notes. You know what I mean? I think that's really important for most things. A lot of people ask me like, what would you suggest to people like and it's not i don't think it's anything to do with technicality or that it's just about finding a place and i think that's really important really interesting a lot for people to get their thoughts around there so good to speak to you thank you so much for right, doing thank this thank you very much thank you very much um letting us into the demo world of nothing but thieves very <laughs> exciting very interesting um we should play one more song as a kind of goodbye piece i mean i was thinking that maybe we should play before we drift away that closes the album. It's, it would be a nice way to close uh, this conversation. It's, and it's another element, isn't it? Um, I mean, that, you know, we've only focused on three songs, but there are, you know, there are eleven songs on the album and uh, many different styles and, and kind of flavors within what you do mm -hmm. as well. Definitely. Great, sounds yeah. good to us. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. This is before we drift away, and I was John Ken Kennedy. <laughs> I didn't even know your own last name. <laughs> I, was like, I, I forgot my own name, and that's just classic John. <laughs> very, very true. <laughs> Could do it like a pro, go on, show me how to do it. Okay, okay, sorry. So thanks again. So good to speak to you all. And this is Before We Drift Away. This is Nothing But Thieves. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. It's such a funny feeling. The world's a war again. But in this very moment, oh, I could have met a little. Immersed in deepest ocean, the waves don't move as one. Separate themselves